What you're telling me is that music is about to stop, and we're going to be left holding the biggest bag of odorous excrement ever assembled in the history of darkness. 1974, 1987, 92, 97, 2000, and whatever we want to call this. It's all just the same thing over and over. We can't help ourselves. I say when we sell. Hey, 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 I say when we sell. This is perfectly timed because Novogratz has been the pinata of Bitcoin when it goes down. It's been the genius of Bitcoin when it goes up. And all of a sudden, Larry showed up at the door to say, hey, big, respectable firms can prosecute and do Bitcoin. Link Lawrence Fink of BlackRock to Mike Novogratz. Well, what's happened is people, as you suggest, uh, make fun of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. But now the establishment, Larry Fink at, uh, at BlackRock, is now saying they're going to have an ETF, if approved by the government, in Bitcoin. So you're saying, wait a second, if the mighty BlackRock is willing to have an ETF in Bitcoin, maybe Bitcoin's going to be around for a while. Lisa wants to jump in here, but I'm going to cut to the news moment. Is Carlisle announcing this morning a Bitcoin advocacy? No, I don't think so. But uh, there's no doubt that Bitcoin is something that I wish I had bought it at $100 a Bitcoin when, when Mike Novogratz started buying it. It's now at $29,000. So he's made a lot of money. And uh, a lot of people who bought it at $100 or less are feeling pretty good. Welcome back to The Last Trade. Started out with a little clip there from David Rubenstein of the Carlyle Group diving into Bitcoin. Uh, and does, does that mean Bitcoin's going to be around for a while, Marty? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think it just may. Be. I think I think our wives may uh, wind up thinking we're not as crazy as as they currently think we are uh, at some point in the next decade. No, but I, I think with the ETF approval too. I mean, we wanted to dive into CPI, but that just made me think uh, about the Fed announcement earlier this week, and they uh, the Fed announces new oversight programs for crypto activities, and so it seems like the the setup for the Bitcoin ETF the infrastructure on the regulatory side is, is beginning to get laid. So I think this week was a positive signal for for the ETF approval. Um, and to introduce our guests, we're joined by uh, Cam Duty from Brickyard Venture Firm out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, who's been really getting into Bitcoin in recent years. Uh, I guess before we dive into what you're doing at Brickyard, Cam, I guess just your general thoughts on what David Rubenstein was just saying there, the overall tenor of institutional capital becoming more uh, comfortable with Bitcoin as an asset. I mean, when I first saw that, you know, you, you're looking at the, the, the top dog at Carlisle. It's like you can tell his level of understanding of Bitcoin is just so surface level. It's like you're talking about like, yeah, I wish I would have bought it because it's now at thirty thousand. It used to be at a hundred. Like, is that the insight that you're that you're giving? I don't know. It just feels like every time I see these, you know, legacy high finance folks talk about Bitcoin. You know, when when Jamie Dimon's talking about Bitcoin, when it's like you can just see it on their face. Like they they really do not they don't understand the asset. It's like they're being forced to pay attention to it, but they've still done feels like they've just done like the minimum amount of work to be able to, you know, throw something out on, on national television uh, and not look like an idiot. But uh, I don't know. It was just unimpressive when I saw that. Yeah. And, and that's 
but that's the trend, right? Like that's what's happening to all of these guys. They're all being forced to you know, shift from laughing at Bitcoin to like now acknowledging, well, you know, I wish I had gotten in earlier um, and and I'll take it. <laughs> that That's going in the right direction. And, you know, how many times are we going to see this? Like how many Wall Street titans are going to drag their feet on learning about Bitcoin um, when, you know, their set of friends or, you know, uh, colleagues they have in their investing community uh, that are bullish on Bitcoin keeps growing. Like all you have to do is listen to Paul Tudor Jones, Bill Miller, <clears throat> Stan Druckenmiller, Novogratz, uh, now Larry Fink, to to get some information that says actually Bitcoin is something that sh you should be including in your in your strategy. Um, and so there's there's some tipping point coming. And and I think we're like we're seeing the precursor to that, right? Like the the shift from laughing at Bitcoin to <clears throat> acknowledging that Novogratz um, uh, had a winner. Uh, that's that's pretty big. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I I think it was that you know the 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 phrase the, talking about somebody like that when. When Fink came out and started talking, when Jamie and Diamond started talking about about Bitcoin, it's like it's it's the classic. First they you know ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then and then you win. I think you know for a lot of these people, they're being forced to to think about, um, you know, what stage are we really in here? I mean, this is the beginning of the assimilation of high finance, and I mean to your point, like I'll totally take it. Um, but it's it's the people that that know the most about the current system that that are going to have the hardest time really understanding this, you know, this paradigm shift because they, they have to unlearn everything that they know. And so anyway, I guess my point was just that it's kind of funny watching somebody like that try to dip their toe in something that's, you know, dip, dip their toe in the in the, you know, the deepest ocean, uh, deepest point in the ocean. Uh, it's just the. It's funny to watch. To, yeah. to be fair and, and level set on some of these guys, though, I think we like uh, might be doing disservice for some of these names. I think the Druckin Millers and the Paul Tudor Jones are in their own class. Uh, I think Novogratz has randomly found himself with all these names. Uh, when I was looking for that clip this morning, I stumbled on his clip that I think they were referencing where he was starting talking about crypto and the universe and like money as a social construct. It's like, these guys don't even really, you know, I, I would have it far, uh, hard to believe that Novogratz actually fully understands what's happening here. Um, but to yeah. Rubenstein's credit, he did like in, in, probably another 60 seconds in that clip does reference a lot of like the, the value proposition of Bitcoin from a permissionless uh, nature and also not being, um, you know, governed or controlled by any one sovereign. Which is interesting from like somebody like that, because I fully on board with kind of the think and you know, BlackRock and what they're here to do and controlling it and long-term plans. But his reference was like, hey, this thing's not going away, not because it's a, at least what I perceive as a talking point, but I, I like understand that this is actually not going away. So now we have to play ball. Uh, and he was probably the first person in that realm of somebody that's not like the, the traders are looking at it as a trade. This guy's looking at it like, shit, I don't think, at least my perception was it, like this isn't going anywhere and it's not going anywhere because I understand 
there's some fundamental um, permissionlessness, sovereign nature to this unit that I can't control or nobody can control. At least that's how I perceive it. I'm curious, Marty, because we had a friend share that earlier in the week, and uh, I think that's where he was coming from. And if you if you kind of pick that up as well, yeah, no. Out of all the high finance titans that have come out and spoke spoken about Bitcoin, I think David Rubenstein actually had the most cyberpunk take, where he was like, "Yeah, people are going to want to send money to each other outside of the purview of their governments, and there's going to be a lot of demand for that. Many people may not like that, but that demand's not going away. And, and yes." Yeah, agree with you, Michael, to his credit. I do think the talking points he was handed, at least, I think he definitely grokked that, like, oh, an apolitical sovereign currency that can't be controlled by governments does have a lot of value. Uh, and I do think that is the main value prop of Bitcoin. And obviously, the last trade, what we're trying to do here, we're trying to talk to high net worth individuals and institutions and really tap into that crowd. And I think it is actually a really strong validation from David Rubenstein to recognize that that is the main value prop. Yes, Bitcoin, there will only ever be 21 million. There's a bunch of energy dedicated to the network. But if it does not have the ability to act in that cypherpunk nature where it's truly peer-to-peer and individuals can send to each other outside the purview of the government, that may rub a lot of people the wrong way and make people uh, unnerve a lot of people. However, like Bitcoin, the 21 million the hash rate, none of it really matters unless you can use the asset with that fundamental primitive of being able to send peer to peer. So while we all agree that institutions are going to need to get exposure to Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin in their balance sheets, hold it in their portfolios, transact with it at some point in the future, I think David Rubenstein coming out with that line of thinking is actually pretty critical because people do need to get comfortable with the fact that Bitcoin only has value if it is able to be transacted in a peer-to-peer fashion. If you can't do that, then there's no reason for people to continue securing the network um, and and investing in Bitcoin. The 21 million is secured by the distributed network of full nodes at the end of the day. And if you don't have that, you really don't have anything. Yeah, I I have an additional thought on this. Like when I see these clips keep happening and, and I can't help but think about um, the Wayne Gretzky quote of, you know, you, you don't skate to where the puck is, you skate to where the puck's going to be. And, and I feel like that's, that remains the fundamental difference between Bitcoiners, people who have arrived at Bitcoin today, and the rest of the world, is that if you're listening to this right now, you have a mind that appreciates where the puck is going, and you see that that's where you want to be. And most of the world, for whatever reason, you know, operates with, you know, their, their operating system is reactive to where the puck is today. And, and that's where they want to be. And so I think, you know, Wall Street is this microcosm of, of um, they need more dots before they can connect them to see where the puck is going. And, you know, if you're listening to this right now, it's, it's because your brain thinks in a different way than most people. And that's your edge. Um, and, you know, it's exciting to think about how um, it's the asymmetric investing opportunity of our lifetimes. Uh, and the, the difference is whether or not you can appreciate data points like this and where they lead to or not. 
Yeah, it's a really good uh, it's a really good point, Jesse. Like, uh, there's a predisposition for somebody to be a Bitcoiner that's not even a Bitcoiner. Like, you know them, and this is like this kind of type of show or the the clip you send to somebody that is like there, and it kind of ties into Cam and what you're doing. We don't know each other, you know, too well, but knowing what you're doing in Chattanooga, your um, you know, your background, and you can share more about it. But there's something there that before you your Bitcoin journey, I would I would be hard pressed to say that you were a Bitcoiner and recognizing like the value and the things that you're doing with the the firm and uh, some of the first principles from getting back to the basics of like how to actually build a sustainable uh, business, how to incentivize and provide like value, I think is a very um, it's a it's a value oriented thing that probably was done for a very long time and we moved away from it and we're going back to it. And uh, so maybe that's a good kind of segue. I'd be curious you're going to hear the the origin story of Brickyard, but also like the I think where that intersects with Bitcoin, because I don't think it's a hard hard way to explain. But I don't think a Bitcoiner um, it took it would have taken a Bitcoiner to build Brickyard, even though you weren't a Bitcoiner and you have Bitcoin at the time, if that makes sense. The very first principles way to build a brand new uh, venture firm and also to help entrepreneurs get off the ground. Yeah, Cam understood proof of work before he learned what Hashcash SHA-256 was. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it goes back to the, the core desire that I've always had, you know, even before, I mean, well before being an entrepreneur, or being a founder. Um, you know, it's never been about money. It's never been about power. It's never been about, uh, like, status or vanity for me. You know, when I graduated, I didn't know what I was going to do. But, you know, I graduated in, two, in the middle of the financial crisis. And, you know, a lot of my friends were taking a year off uh, work. And um, I was, you know, I was just anxious. I wanted to get started. I wanted to do something. And uh, I, I started, I, I took a job that um, it kind of just opened my, it, it, very few people were hiring and uh, I took a job as like one step above a teller at a bank, at a bank, in a, a bank branch in a mark, mall parking lot. And um, it scared the absolute dog shit out of me. Um, and it made me realize like, okay, the real world's a real thing. If, if, if I don't take uh, responsibility for my own financial destiny. I'm going to be on somebody else's path, and they're going to dictate that path for me. And so, it was always freedom that that pushed me into, uh, I guess, the way that I've acted my entire life. Um, it I, it all kind of always goes back to freedom. I remember being on a uh, at a at a. Uh, a field trip in like seventh grade we were like walking down this boardwalk at this camp on the ocean and we were like in a full uniform you know like button down a tie and you know slacks it's like you know hot outside and i'm looking at these tidal pools and like all i wanted to do was just jump into these tidal pools and like you know find crabs and, and like learn the the majesty of nature that was in front of my face but instead i'm gonna have to you know walk in a single file line to you know some class that I, I have no interest in, and it, that stuck with me. I think it was why you know school is always difficult, you know, for me to actually get interested in it. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, it pushed me to to be an ind independent thinker on you know across most of the facets of my life. And then when I graduated college, it was like okay. This is like, it was the final straw. I was like, I, I have to take, you know, financial 
uh, responsibility for my own destiny here. And that's what almost like was scared into being an entrepreneur. Um, and, uh, you know, when I heard about Bitcoin in 2015, my buddy actually, um, guy named Grant Morgan, who's a, an amazing founder, started R0. Um, he was like, you just need to buy some Ethereum. He was like an Ethereum guy. And uh, he's like, buy some Ethereum and just start learning about it. And, and that's actually how I got into it. I bought some Ethereum back in 15. And that, uh, the, the world of decentralization just captured me. Um, and the deeper and deeper that I got into it, uh, I started getting this pit in my stomach where it was like a very serious topic run by like very unserious people. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is like, you know, Vitalik and fanny packs and like monkey suits at conferences and like everybody I talked to in the space is like, you're talking about something that's very important to mankind and you are going about it in about the least serious way that I can imagine. And then I started talking to Bitcoiners and it was like, oh, well, here's the signal. Like, these are serious people. And I started mixing out of Ethereum into Bitcoin. And then we sold our company, uh, uh, a chunk of our company in, in late 2019. Um, and the Dow was at like 30,000 or something. And, and I didn't want to go into cash or I didn't, I didn't want to go into the market. So I just was sitting on, on, on cash. And then I just, the luckiest thing in the world, you know, for me, it was, you know, COVID happened, the Dow went down to 18 or whatever. And that's when I just piled into, into Bitcoin, uh, among other things. Um, but since then, Bitcoin has just completely taken over my mind. Um, around the same time that I, I started, you know, really going down the, the Bitcoin rabbit trail, rabbit hole, um, we, we, we realized that, you know, there's a big opportunity in venture capital and this, this frothy market where the culture of, of founders had changed so much over the last 10 years, where you used to feel sorry for founders. You just be like, fuck, I'm sorry. Keep going. You know, this is hard. Uh, you know, founders in like 2021, 2022, just you'd go raise a million dollar seed round and you'd think that you were a celebrity and there's so much ego involved and like, the work ethic had gone away and work from home was this new thing. And people were like building their companies in like Bali. And it was just like, what is, what's happening? And that was the impetus for Brickyard and why we, we kind of like swung the pendulum all the way to the, to the other side. And we just said, we know that everything's going to correct. You know, people are going to start taking this seriously again. Uh, we're just naturally drawn to serious people. Um, and uh, and that's really how how we we built the whole brand or, around what Brickyard is, and and it, really every component of Brickyard is around how serious are you? Are you ready to go to war for a decade, uh, and, and you know go through the pains of firing your best friends, and you know and and having anxiety so thick that you can't sleep for three days, and you know all these you know, the, the toil that every entrepreneur deals with is as they, you know, go through their path to an exit. Um, you know, most people think it's easy. It's, it's extremely hard. So anyway, that's, that's sort of my, my story, Bitcoin and Brickyard, and we can kind of dig into anything you guys want to talk about. That yeah. that's really fa fascinating. Like the juxtaposition that you referenced. I don't know if you've, if you said that on purpose or have caught that like ETH 
to Bitcoin, similar to like what traditional venture looks like in the fiat world to what you're doing in the, in the seriousness and the, and it comes down to the money, right? Cause like money's just truth and it's tied to like a certain finite, you know, value, uh, that is proof of work and all the things we know, whether it was gold or, or Bitcoin and, yeah. you know, Ethereum just you know, came out of a, you know, magic smoke out of Ethereum, uh, Vitalik's ass or whatever. The other three, what was it Lubin and the other two, like one other guy. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so you tie that to why it all, like you were looking for the, you know, the signal, the heart, like the proof of work, the people that were serious in the same way of like the person that gravitates to like, Hey, I'll take maybe less, you know, capital, but because this is like, I'm actually about this. Like I'm not here for the, you know, the, the flash that I just raised a million and a half or whatever it is. It's very interesting. Like the same thing that you saw in both tied, uh, like you back to kind of like the, the first principles of, of value. Yeah, as you say that, it, it hadn't occurred to me, but you, you're spot on. I mean, that's, yeah, totally. No, like to build on this, like I had a very similar disposition coming up out of college. I mean, I was in high school, I was a senior in high school when the financial system imploded, went to college, studied economics, got a job at a fund. And it wasn't necessarily that people were unserious, is that they were complacent. Like at that time, it was transitioning from Bernanke to Yellen. We were in like Operation Twist and then QE2 and 3. And I would sit there as a young portfolio analyst on a small portfolio management team. And we were fun to fund. So I got to literally ask some of the most successful chief investment officers in the commodity trading advisor space like questions. And at the ripe old age of 21, 22, I was really honed in on Fed policy because I had been radicalized in 2008 as a senior in high school and then really stuck with it throughout college. And I just remember the, the rampant complacency that, that existed at that level of the investment world when I would sit in meetings and be like, hey, do you guys think like Fed policy is going to affect markets at all? And, and they were still back then, 2012, 2013, 2014, sitting from the position of no, like the Fed is sort of apolitical. Like they have to do what they have to do, but I don't think they're going to affect markets that much. And that complacency really scared the shit out of me. And I was like, oh man, like this is not going to be good. So similarly, like I do not do well working for others. And so throughout my twenties, I quit a few jobs until I finally dove into Bitcoin and decided to carve out a little niche for myself and not to talk too much about my story, but I really want to dive in to the comment you made about the seriousness between uh, Ethereum and the difference of uh, the serious approach at Ethereum to Bitcoin. Like what did you see in Bitcoiners that really thought, made you think like, oh, these guys are serious. They're actually doing something here. Well, you know, I, I think it's probably important to provide some context on like how my journey into Bitcoin came about. Like, Probably unlike maybe all of you guys, you know, I don't, there is no community. There, there was no community in like 15, 16, 17. I mean, even now in, you know, in, in my circles, I'm like the Bitcoiner <laughs> that I, I'm not constantly around a bunch of other Bitcoiners. And I went to Bitcoin Park um, maybe six months ago for the first time. And that was the first time where I was actually surrounded by other Bitcoiners. But the feeling that I got there was like the most p 
purely validating experience I can give you. Like I, I had been years and years of sort of like toiling with this idea that's like taken over my mind like a virus. My wife thinks I'm absolutely nuts. Um, but it was all, it was me pouring over content on the internet. It started that way. Like I, I was, I was as interested in, in Ethereum as, as, you know, or I wasn't as, you know, it, it was a captivating idea to me. And the one thing that I just could never understand was there was just a disconnect between this is a very serious subject. These are very unserious people. I must be crazy. I'm missing something because something doesn't feel natural about this. Um, and, and then over time I, I realized that I think they, they just had something wrong. And, uh, and, as I started, you know, meeting one Bitcoin, two, two Bitcoiners here and there, you know, you, you'd sit down and, and you had the same serious topic, but now you had a person that was like totally in it for the good of humanity, the, the sort of altruistic view of this is good for everybody everywhere. Um, and as a Bitcoiner, like every every Bitcoiner that I ever met, it almost feel, felt like that I was talking to somebody that felt obligated to to tell me why this was so important. And uh, and that was that level of serious that I found and I said, okay, this is a serious topic. These are serious people. Maybe I need to spend some more time here. And uh, and that's what I ended up doing. I started sort of mixing into Bitcoin and like every time I did it, I felt better. And then, you know, by 2020, moving everything into Bitcoin um, was a very easy decision for me to make. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I just haven't looked back since. I mean, it's just a, I guess that's how I'd put it. It's just a very serious topic with very serious people. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's so interesting to think about, like, the, the Ethereum crowd, the whole ethos, the, the entire culture there is like a, it's a it's a malignant tumor version of um, move fast and break things, and software is is eating the world, and that means software will eat money, but money doesn't play like that. Money yep. is its own thing. It, it supersedes everything. Money is the foundation of human civilization, and s software can eat it if it's playing on money's terms. You know if it if the software is designed to abide by what gives money value, what gives a, co a commodity value, then software can eat money, but you can't brute force your way into a takeover of money by applying a Silicon Valley ethos of move fast and break shit. Uh, and that's what Ethereum is doing. And, and, and they're drumming up hype on stage by doing little badger dances. That's, that's not how this works. That's where they lost me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, been around Bitcoin for a decade, like saw Ethereum come and launch and really understood intuitively during its ICO and post-launch, like this isn't the way to do it. And for the longest time, it would frustrate me and I'd find myself like in Twitter battles with Ethereans, like trying to explain to them why their approach to this is completely off and I think over the last three years, I found what I call my Bitcoins in, where it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it, Yes, they're going to get a lot of hype and we can get into a bunch of back and forth arguments on Twitter. But at the end of the day, 
going back to what I said earlier in, in the context of David Rubenstein's comments, like if this is going to be successful, I'm going to say this. I've been saying this on podcasts for years and I will continue to say it because I do truly intuitively believe that there is an order of operations to all of this, that these things are going to succeed. If Bitcoin is going to succeed, like you need to fulfill an order of operations in the front end of that order of operations is distribution of full nodes, distribution of hash rate, uh, security, uh, like boring lending products, multi-sig, all of that. And then we can get to the fun things. And then that, that seriousness that you reference, uh, Cam, is something that I, I like to think I've always tried to focus on in Bitcoin is like, hey, like all that stuff looks fun and sparkly and a lot of people are making a lot of money. But like you said, like this is an imperative for humanity moving forward. And we have to be dead serious about this, like focusing on this front end of the order of operations. Totally. Yeah. You know, yeah, I was just going to say, and like the the easiest way to project like what you just referenced, Marty, that we don't talk about enough um, and being so early and that like a lot of the things that have been built aren't actually the things that will be, you know, in 10 years is the uh, the price. If, if we all believe this works, we, we know where this goes. We know the amount of adoption. We have like maybe 0.1%, whatever the number is of actual people across the world using it. And that uh, the people aren't here, the, the products haven't been delivered. And so we're not... Um, we're still that early in reference to like the the order of operations there's all these like different ideas whether it's on you know ethereum or just you know bitcoin and the different things that are, are being built and it's necessary but then there's also just like this core foundation uh that's still required to to be built yeah i mean when i think about that you know i guess what i described earlier is like what initially got me into it what what has captivated me recently yeah, over the last year or two, it's like one, you know, Jeff Booth's understanding of, you know, prices will follow the marginal cost of production like that, that set off an atom bomb in my brain. It, because it, it was the smoking gun for, for how the Fed steals. And then as I follow you, all you guys, you know, you guys do such a good job to like spinning time in the macro of like what is actually happening in our in in, in the macro and that that's that's not my day job I, I i don't spend time doing that so i follow you guys uh who, who spend you know all your time really paying attention to what you know is is happening in in all the levers that, that the fed you know is pulling but like if the fed doesn't print okay if we assume that technology is going to to accelerate at a massive pace which me being in venture like i know where this is going moore's law is not slowing down we we are i mean this the advent of ai is i think the greatest thing that ever happened in bitcoin because it's going to make everything happen much faster but you know technology driven deflation is coming and and happening right now if the fed doesn't print the dollar goes up so does the real value of our debt, economic activity, consumer spending decreases, which, you know, is going to affect tax revenues, uh, which is going to make things worse. You know, interest rates are going to have to drop, which reduces the, the Treasury's balance sheet, uh, which makes it harder for them to make payments. You know, printing will, will, be, will become this like justified thing. Like we have to do this because this is happening. And 
it, you know, which this this all means, you know, hyper Bitcoinization has to be in this in this decade, in my opinion, because I, I don't actually think Powell and Yellen are like malicious evil people. They're they're just flying a plane that's going down with every American on it, and they're limited to the controls that they have in the cockpit. But they're they just blew the engines out, like the engines are blown, okay, and the only control inputs still available are like stick and rudder, you know, and are they going to just nose over and be like, well, might as you know, might as well make it quick? Like, no, of course they're not going to do that, and and I don't think any of us would do that either. Um, I, I, it's like, the thing is, is I don't think that they actually understand Bitcoin either. And, and if they, if they did understand Bitcoin, then they would, then they would be malicious, but I I don't think they do. I think that they're literally just like their world is so small. They've got tunnel vision. They're in this cockpit. It's like, here are my control inputs. What do I do now? Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, this is that serious subject is is that is is just kind of you know crazy to think about that we're living through these times. Yeah, and 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 we are living through these times right now. I mean, I I was just um, digging into the numbers a little bit on on the debt. Like, it's moving so fast that you have to revisit it every few months. Um, so we had the debt ceiling debate. And inevitably, they they lifted the debt ceiling for the next few years. Uh, that was two months ago, and we've issued 1.3 trillion dollars of new national debt uh, since then. Now, the yep. U.S. Treasury just came out last week with their guidance, their updated guidance for the rest of the year. Um, so, you know, five six months, five months left um, for 1.8. $5 trillion more of, of debt issuance. It's going to be necessary to keep the lights on for the country to just to get us through the rest of the year. So yep. that's seven, eight months of uh, the, the last seven or eight months of 2023, uh, we're going to issue $3.15 trillion of new debt on top of our tax receipts. You know, this is deficit spending in excess of, of what we're, we're bringing in in tax receipts. Um, right now, that, that, that's that's happening right now, and it keeps getting revised upwards because the thing that's that's also hitting uh, the country right now, and and I think you know the policymakers are are somehow surprised by this is the interest expense on our existing national debt is rolling over at these uh, high interest rates right now of five percent. We have. $9 trillion of national debt rolling over in the next 18 months. Um, over the last 18 months, we've had our annual interest expense uh, go up $400 billion. That $9 trillion that's going to roll over in the next 18 months will result in $300 billion in additional annual interest expense on the debt. So together, that's $700 billion of incremental interest expense every single year going forward um, on our national debt that we didn't have 18 months ago. And, and yep. how big is that? That's an entire extra U.S. military every year. That's how big that yep. is. And that, that's an impact that we're facing right now. And how are we going to fund that? We're, we have to issue more and more debt. And here's the debt spiral. But Jesse, Chamath yep. said it's not a problem. It's okay. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> it's, I love it. it's, the the all-in podcast pulled up some of my charts on. Like, I, I wrote a piece on the, the national debt uh, debt spiral, and um, the all-in podcast they pulled up the charts. A, a couple of them follow my writing, and uh, and and Shamath just dismissed it as like, yeah, it's not a big deal because because the U.S. dollar is the best currency out there. So of no, course, everyone's going to still want the U.S. dollar. But it's not true because there's a better currency out there, and it's super sovereign. It, well, it, it goes beyond the national level. I got so frustrated listening to last week's episode of the All In Podcast. And I listened to it just to keep a pulse on like what that side of the investment world, like how they're viewing the world. I do think there is a lot of insights uh, that they bring to the venture world. There's a lot of bad takes as well. Um, but when it comes to like macro, I do think they're completely missing the mark and have a massive blind spot. And so, yeah, like yeah. Uh, Chamas rant last week that where's everybody else going to go? Like on a spectrum of relativity, like the dollar and treasuries are the only safe haven in the world. And that's just completely missing the mark. Um, they're, just, they're, they're just missing that. That point. That was the thing, you know, when we kicked off this podcast, like I have this like sort of deep frustration that people can't see, you know, I, I have to remind myself that, that, People haven't spent the amount of time thinking about this than we than we have. And my first move is like D WTF. Like, but I have to remember, you know, they're the beginning of the of their journey into really understanding. Like the Titanic's going down, you know, they don't really fully understand that there's a perfect boat with no holes in the hull that just pulled up right next to that boat. And the people are gonna make a decision whether they stay on this boat or whether they just swim over to this other boat. Like they don't even, they're not even aware that that thing is here, you know? Yeah. Um, and, but it, go, it goes back to this deeper, like a uh, hundred year battle against hard assets that, that I don't, the Federal Reserve won in, in, the, in the hearts and minds of the people. Um, you know, the average, the typical portfolio is 60, 40, zero, that zero being hard assets. No, people don't hold gold uh, because they don't think that it matters because we've been trained to think that yield is the only thing you know worth having and that the dollar is a stable measuring stick. To, those times yeah. are over. To be fair, though, all those guys yeah. know that this is unsustainable. They just don't know the end. And so that's what makes the their like every yeah. take that they, they have because like Chamath knows that this doesn't work. He's just talking his book and, and is a mercenary, so he's trading it. Uh Sachs actually is a Bitcoiner, like he invests in Bitcoin companies. It's not in his best interest to talk about that. Freeberg is the one that sounds alarm on all that crap, but he doesn't know the end in Bitcoin. And then Calcanis, well, he's fucked. So like that's that's he, he literally yeah. has no yeah. idea what's going on. I don't I don't like to let's focus on the ideas. Like I don't want to talk about Chamath particularly, but like the, I wrote the newsletter about it this week and the blind spot that he has is like, even if you run with the assumption that on a spectrum of relativity, people have to pile into treasuries and the dollar because it's the best on a relative scale. Like the blind spot with that line of thinking, we don't even have to bring Bitcoin into the mix is the weaponization of the dollar over the last two years. Like, yes, on a relative scale from an economic standpoint, the US may be way better than all the alternatives. However, the weaponization of the dollar over the last two years is going to force sovereign nations to seek alternatives, even if they may be considered less optimal than treasuries or the dollar. And that's like, 
taking Bitcoin out of the mix and just focusing on that scale of relativity that he mentioned. He has a complete blind spot where, yes, relatively speaking, the dollar and treasuries may be better place to park your, your assets, your wealth. However, like the weaponization of that system is going to force people to seek alternatives. What that ends up being, we think it should be Bitcoin, but I think we'll find out in the years to come, they're going to try a bunch of different alternatives. And that is being driven by the fact that they are now forced to because of the weaponization of the dollar system. But he knows that. Yeah. Like, Chamath is the smartest person on that pod. It's the same reason we're like on the, the, the past week, it's talked about Joe Rogan and how he doesn't talk about Bitcoin. You think Joe Rogan doesn't have an idea of like what the fuck's happening here? He alludes to it. There's a reason why they, they don't talk about it publicly. It's not because they don't understand the weaponization. Like, that's one order from what just happened with Russia. Like, he's talking a book for his investors. He understands what's happening here. He cannot just like, speak of it for a number of reasons uh but he he knows like he's he's these guys are smart like it's not i wouldn't give it i don't know that Rogan talk about it Dude, he's talking about issuing 100 year bonds like and like yeah we can do that well because that's how he trades yeah. it that's how he plays that he's made a, a billions of dollars he has investors he has um his uh, social capital like there's a whole thing he even talked about it years ago he's like okay i'm gonna quit leaking alpha like i'm just not gonna explain how i'm gonna play this it's like what where would he benefit it's like oh this is all fucked the dollar's done it, you could bonds are screwed like going into that where does it benefit him in any world that he plays in to say that into all his investors like he 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 knows that what we're talking about it's just like anyway i, I, I do totally think agree that, i i wonder though like but why would rogan not talk about it uh, talk about it i well, I, well somebody had an interesting point on this if like it, it's too polarizing if you if Rogan was to talk about Bitcoin, then he'd have all every altcoiner like, you know, banging on his door but saying Ro- you have to <laughs> give equal time to this other side of the story. And he doesn't want to deal yeah, with but that. Rogan, Ro- yeah, but Rogan loves that shit. Rogan will take it, uh, will go hard on a topic that's massively unpopular. I haven't thought deeply, but I saw the same take and that's what sparked with the, the reference to Rogan. I think, um, there is an angle where this stuff is that serious where he's like, fuck it. Like, I can't, I'm not going to go there because it really is that it really is that serious. Like Rogan has such a big following that you start going down the rabbit hole and he already alludes to the CBDC. It's not like one connection from CBDC to money that isn't controllable and it's there. And so like, again, do you expect Rogan hasn't caught, like understand one step from CBDC is a money that can't be controlled. Like we have to be, you know, again, we, it's an intro. Yeah. It's just, it's fascinating because these people are smart. I think, um, they have yeah. it's it's Odell's whole thing. Like once they're on the platform that can censor them and take them off, uh, they're they're going to self censor. So as much as even All In likes to say that they're against establishment and Wall Street Journal and all that, at the same time, like they're always thinking like, what are? It's not even about what the establishment cares because they're not the ones giving them money. It's the people that are their LPs and their investors and that are uh, you know the like shareholders and whatever different fun formations they have that's the problem they have to basically speak to at the end of the day for sure for sure for sure yeah for sure. and i don't want to turn this into a an all-in critique episode <laughs> however i do have more thing look and pull up the first chart so obviously talking about the fed and the treasury they only have so many levers in front of them that they can manipulate to try to land the plane softly one of those levers is manipulating the data uh and so cpi came out today, uh, I believe the print, the official print was 3.2%. And Logan, if you can pull up that tweet, the first one with the meme, um, 
it is uh it's crazy how bad they're manipulating these numbers I'm, okay great yeah <laughs> so us is 3.2 percent food away from home inflation 7.1 shelter inflation 7.7 transportation inflation nine percent and if you take out those uh latter three uh, metrics like core CPI was only up 0.2%. And that's the headline they're running with full CPI is 3.2 core X food, shelter and energy is 0.2. We got inflation under control. Trust us. Yeah. Just besides your major cost buckets, it's under control. The signs are everywhere. It's it's really fascinating to see like the news and everybody talk about soft planning and CPI. And then you go wherever you go and there's just this grim, like, whether it's you walk in somewhere and it's like, oh yeah, man, times are tough right now, or you just, it's across the board. There's a number of anecdotal references that I've experienced the past couple of weeks, and I'm sure you guys have as well. Um, we're, we are, already, are deeply in a recession right now and nobody's speaking of it. Yeah, well, Logan, pull up the second tweet too. And that's the point I wanted to make with this is that there is that class of incumbent uh, high finance venture that do believe what the Fed is feeding them. And so- but yeah. when they are faced with the reality of, of <laughs> the economy, <laughs> go back to the first suite so we can read it for people who aren't, aren't watching. So this is Jason Calacanis again. Don't want this to be an all-in critique podcast episode, but it's turning into that quite a bit. Jason tweeted on August 4th, uh, so less than a week ago, people are complaining about the economy in some fields never been worse. We have the lowest unemployment and largest job openings of our lifetimes. Inflation is moderate. You can get anything you want delivered to your house in two hours to two days. Consumers complain constantly. And then a few days later, the next tweet, uh, on August 7th, I believe, he tweeted out, three bags of groceries, $350. Some high-end items like locks, but my Lord, everything is $12 now. So <laughs> I think hey, Mark, Jason, with these two tweets is essentially like proving the archetype of the person who's going along with the narrative that the Fed and the BLS are putting out there, like the numbers are good, getting back to this recovery. But then when faced with the reality of the situation in real life, they cannot help but call out like, oh, shit, like this is expensive. But you just hit the nail on the head, Marty. Um, you said not turning this into an all-in critique, but the idea is going as far as saying this is like you know, a little bold statement. This is where the alpha is. And what, that, what I mean by that, and it ties into why they're saying what they say, is they're telling you how they want you to play it we're telling people how we want them to play it, like how they should play it. Like they need to protect themselves. They need Bitcoin. This is how you should be thinking about the world from first principles. They're telling you, oh no, everything's fine. CPA is fine. Like just go back to your business, like bonds, you know, 2%. Like there's two different things happening uh, in the same way when you look, you go to CNN or whatever, it's like, oh, inflation's fine. It's there versus like, who's actually telling you the truth. And that's like the Delta or the thing that we're describing here is like, they have a good view of the world because they're experts in their own field and which is very important, but they're just missing the other side, whether it's because they truly miss it or because they're just talking their bug. It, it's, it's hard to see yeah. it if you're in the ivory tower and all of these guys are in the ivory tower. They've been too successful and they're in the insulated bubble of only hanging out with very successful people. Um, you know, they, they're barely detecting the fact that there's pain, uh, for, for most consumers and it takes a $350 of, of groceries to figure that out for them. But, you know, go talk to, go talk to the families who just canceled Disney plus because they're, they're tightening the belt and Disney yeah. plus is down what it was 9% uh, in subscribers or seven or 9%. 
in subscribers this quarter um, because people are tightening the belt. That's that's middle class and upper middle class people um, and working class people who are are looking at their budget, thinking, "Man, groceries are a lot more expensive now. Where can we find a little extra money?" And and they're crossing off the streaming services. That's the pain, and and that's what Jason and or, or any Silicon Valley venture capitalists can't see because they're not they're not going through that exercise themselves, going, looking at their budget, going down the list of of their credit card expenses for the month, and trying to find things to cut. That's not what Jason's living, and so he's not going to see Bitcoin. Um, he's not going to see the pain of inflation, and that will drive him to uh, appreciate Bitcoin. Whereas middle-class families who are trying to save for their children's future, they'll be able to get it quicker and hopefully they do. Yeah. And I mean, this actually provides a good segue into really diving in the state of venture with Cam here. I mean, you mentioned the ivory tower in the venture space, the ivory towers, obviously in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. Um, but it's like we were, chatting before we hit record the state of venture right now is in a state of uh disarray for many people uh and cam like what are your thoughts on number one the state of venture but like the trends obviously brickyard you guys are stationed in chattanooga far away from silicon valley like is there a tectonic shift happening in venture or maybe you don't need to be uh in silicon valley or san francisco to be backing the best companies like is venture sort of distributing a bit more yeah i mean the venture industry has gone through like a pretty radical change post covid so like covid happened and um all of a sudden venture like all of venture funding like basically stopped during the lockdowns and then it came like roaring back and then you know the prices just went through the absolute roof um the the i'd say the Venture investors have been investing um, steadily more outside of the tech hubs over the last, like, call it like six or seven years. Uh, COVID just like just rapidly accelerated that. And so teams that were in SF or in Seattle or in New York and like they were fed up in the lockdowns, talent just went poof. They went, you know, went all over the country. Cities, you know, bigger, the, the big recipients were like bigger uh like non-giant metro cities like Nashville, Charlotte, Raleigh, Atlanta, Dallas, you know, Austin, those cities just got hammered by, you know, talent leaving big metros and, and flooding in. And so venture investors started to have to like chase it, you know, um, the, the talent to those cities. Um, and for like the first like year or two, you know, it was all Zooms and it, it pretty much now still is is all virtual in terms of like diligence in companies. I'd say like you only make an in-person visit to a city that, or to a company that's not in your city, like, you know, well, well into the diligence process of, of, of a company, maybe like even like the partner meeting. And in, in some cases, checks are just written, you know, without ever meeting in person. So that that has all happened in venture. On the valuation side, valuations are just like, plummeting um you know they went through the roof um when everything sort of crescendoed in like 2022 um and uh, and prices you know the, the 
I think about it like money's like a river, you know, uh, the big money managers are basically like behind the dam or, or like the Fed, you know, you know or, or right under the big fish sitting right underneath the dam. And then the further you go down river, you know, it goes down from like, you know, the black rocks, of the world to like the big private equity, of the world, you know, to eventually get down to venture capital. And then even that's broken out by like growth stage venture and early stage venture. And so like by the time prices get down to like the really, really early stage venture capital, um, everything else has corrected. So like the early stage seed, pre-seed and seed is the last to correct. And that's where we invest is, is in the in pre-seed and seed, which is like your first institutional check that you would take as a company. Those prices are, are now being affected. Uh, and that's probably, that's been happening for the last, you know, two months or so, two, three, four months or so. Um, but I think it's, they're going to continue to, to correct. Um, but I think we're, we're, you know, we're probably, you know, 50% of the way there. Kim, can you talk about, um, you know, you referenced your journey, like 19, 20, and then starting Brickyard, like where the, the Bitcoin lens has helped. Um, cause I think that's a big component to this, right? It's like, we talk about, you know, whoever in, in VC and we can make fun or not and their lens of the world. But I think we'd all agree here that the lens of Bitcoin and going back to first principles and opportunity costs help in how you navigate and think about risk and, and opportunity and where you place your bets. Um, I'd be curious kind of like how, how that's changed your perception, if any, and then how you kind of like help the firms and how you provide, you know, other value outside of just like capital. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's weird being in venture and being a Bitcoiner. And I learned this, you know, when I went to Miami, this last year was the first Bitcoin conference that I went to. And I was like welcomed with open arms and, and got to meet like some of those amazing people like Marty, obviously you, one of them, uh, and, and Michael, I don't think we saw each other down there, but it, it, it was like a moment where I, I realized like venture investors are not really respected in this world because we are like, you know, in the other system. And I think it's, it's like a first move of any Bitcoiner would be like, well, a VC doesn't really understand like that they're playing in the wrong sandbox. Um, and, uh, and, and so I had to continue to kind of remind people like, no, 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 I'm a Bitcoiner. This, you know, this is what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm allocating capital into early stage companies, you know, you know, that I believe in. And uh, I, I, I've started investing, you know, I want to do as many Bitcoin first companies that I can do. I've started, actually, I've done a couple now. Um, but it, it's, it's mainly more of like a mindset of like, it just goes back to the serious people thing. Like if you go to justlaybrick.com, which is Brickyard's site, you, it's just, you'll immediately understand we're drawn to serious people. And, uh, and so, you know, I think the Bitcoiner in me is, is probably that voice that you hear resonate across, uh, you know, what we really think matters stylistically with early stage, you know, founders that they're, they really understand that they're the game that they're getting into. Um, and they're taking it, you know, super seriously. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing we really try to focus on, on 1031 too, like taking the, uh, what many would deem the exuberance of, uh, the probably like the last 15 years until a year and a half ago that existed 
in venture and just in markets more broadly, but especially when you're investing in Bitcoin businesses, like that's one thing that we really focus on. I was like, all right, you really have to focus on on profitability and like getting there as quickly as possible. Like this game is not going to be the same as it has been uh, throughout the 2010s and early 2020s. Like you're really going to have to figure out product market fit, go to market strategy, getting revenue, getting profit as quickly as possible. And I think that's another interesting topic we dive in is like, especially with the emergence of AI, like what are your thoughts on like, how these companies actually scale up with as little as possible. Like, yes, getting venture capital in the door, but having somewhat of a bootstrap mentality to make sure that they're actually running profitable businesses. Yeah. Well, I mean, what AI is going to do is it's going to make, it's going to allow operators to operate with much less uh, uh, purchasing power, is what I'd say is, you know, it's going to create this deflationary force. It's like significant. I mean, like yesterday, like I, la I launched our like swag store for Brickyard uh, yesterday, which I, I just opened a bonfire account. Um, and I went uh, and, and toggling between mid journey and Photoshop. Like I spun out like five t-shirt designs in like 30 minutes that are like really good. And it it's like, that would have, I can't even, I can't imagine how much that would have got cost to like get exactly what we wanted in something like that. But it would have been in like the, you know, it would have been a designer's time for a week or more, you know, and now it's like something that a, a non-technical person can go in and, and spin up and, you know, in a few minutes. And so what AI is going to do for these companies is going to allow them to operate on, on less capital. And so we're, yeah, we're, we're, huge proponents of our teams like, you know, burn, you should look at your purchasing power, the dollars you have in your account uh, as like, this is this lifeline. I mean, your default debt, all these companies precede and seed are, are still burning money. Um, if you're leaning into growth, I mean, it's very difficult to be totally profitable from, from day one, but if you have that mindset of, of, you know, staying really efficient from day one and that your burn really doesn't have to increase that much, you know, uh, as a percentage of, of like your, your revenue or your, your, uh, that you're driving. Um, it, uh, you know, it, it's, that's the way you should think about building these, these businesses, but AI is just going to allow these teams to go way faster on less, on less purchasing power. Um, yeah. Yeah, Cam, that's what really gravitated when I uh, conceptually had, had thought in my in my mind of um, certain concepts that Brickyard's doing and hadn't seen it in practice. And I don't know, I think it was Trey from Unchained initially had uh, mentioned mentioned what you were doing. And then Cam obviously made the, the introduction this past year at the, the conference. Um, but this idea, and uh, Marty was there at the uh, first beef summit in Kerrville, Texas, a small town. This was last year, I think. The years are kind of blending together, but it was uh, uh, the first beef summit by Texas Slim. And one of the core ideas was it was in the middle of nowhere in Texas, and it was meant to be uh, very intentional. If you if you went out there, it was like the proof of work. You were serious about business, and you were serious about the the mission that they were on. And I think of what you're referencing uh, in the same way of like firms and companies have been started 
and they've burned capital, they've assumed that they have to hire HR and marketing and design, like your reference to AI. And you get the, the dollars in and they go out and head counts the name, you know, whether you're at a big company like Google or you're in starting, it's like, how many people um, do I have reporting to me? And I still think that exists. Like we still, even through, even though we're talking about all this kind of like pain and, and you know, companies either going under or laying, being laid off, that is still like built in in the same way that like a fiat mindset is built into that the dollar is going to last for forever. But what, what I saw was like that not only did you set up the, you know, the, the place in Chattanooga, the, all the resources, but then you required um, the entrepreneurs to go there. Uh, and I don't know the exact mechanics and you could probably, you know, you're, you can clarify them, but, you know, tr- roughly 12 plus months, find product market fit because somebody willing to do that was that like heuristic of, oh, this is the person from a like a capital allocator that is your dream person you want to give a dollar to because it's going to go 10 to 100x further than it would go anywhere else. And that's what AI effectively does, right? It just like allows for max leverage on what somebody's attempting to do. We think about this here at OnRamp too, how we build the business from a very first principle because at the end of the day, like our opportunity cost is BTC. And so you're for every dollar, every minute you're spending doing something else, well, that's a, you know, a, a sat less earned or sat that couldn't be coming in. Uh, and so it's just a very interesting, this is where I tie back to you being a Bitcoiner before, because you had this concept before really fully going down the rabbit hole. And it plays exactly to like the, the version of how I see the world plays out of capital is abundant. It's everywhere. It's really about, um, and it's not even access anymore, like access. Oh, I know this person. So it's actually, what can you instill in the um, learnings like yours at Bellhop that can say, oh, this is the difference from going to zero to one or one to 10 or 10 to 100. And that's what's in my mind, what's really been lacking for the past, let's call it 30 plus years of venture is like, it's more of capital allocators versus like actual builders. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we have like a domesticated animal problem in venture, where like founders are like wild animals. And, and like you're you know, your Harvard MBA who, you know, who graduated and went and worked for an iBanker for a number of years and then, you know, got a job in venture capital and sort of worked their way. Like, this is a very, and I'm not shitting on those guys. Like, they, that, that's a very specific, um, you know, they out of the world. It's like they know how to run an operation when a playbook is given to you. Like, from, from the time that they were 10 years old, their, their parents were grooming them in, like, how do you get into Harvard? And how you, and so, you know, without, without shitting on MBAs, um, I just want to make the delineation. There's a very, there's a difference between, you know, y- your pure founder who is, is this like independent thinking, like ball of, of s- sort of, uh, like like manic energy of this neuroticness of like i have a problem and i have to solve this problem and you know the the natural path of any startup like you can get by with breaking a lot of rules early on and like in a lot of cases like you have to break a lot of rules early on you have to think totally outside of the box you have to be willing to you know take risks and do things that you could never do and you know if you're working in a corporate gig um but then as you grow, like you, you have to start taking on some of those like domesticated aspects of like, how do you run a board and how do you, you know, manage your, your, your investors and, and how do you run like a large organization? Um, I think the, the, 
thing that we've sort of witnessed in venture is just like we have a whole lot of people who are domesticated animals who are like vetting these wild animals. It's like golden retrievers that are like vetting Siberian wolves. And in a lot, in a lot of cases, they, there's just this disconnect and, you know, it's the classic, like, you know, there's a herd think that's happening and, and, um, you know, I think a lot of the capital allocators are in the business, you know, just are, they're missing the point that like, especially at an, at an early stage when you're not looking at financial statements and you're not looking at, you know, like a ton of traction data or like historical data in the business. It's like, you have to stare into the heart of this founder and understand like, is this a wolf or is this a dog? And, and, and if you can place all your bets in wolves, like that's how venture returns happen. Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly right. I think because uh, you have to back test the story. Like it's the idea maze, right? You know, the whole everybody knows Bezos was successful, but then they don't know that how many times he failed. And so he'd go and, yep. you know, you go a direction and then you have to reverse back out because you're more times going to fail than not. But when you hear the story of like the anecdote when somebody's pitching, it's like, well, wait, let's back into how you got to that story. Because it's easy to tell the story. Everybody's a storyteller, but it's like, did you actually like, to your point, because you, you said it and it's probably something that you live through that most people wouldn't. It's like, oh, I didn't sleep for three days because of anxiety because I had, you know, capital or I had to make budget. And those little things are, um, I think to your point, yeah, what's been missing in that true venture sense of like somebody that built, then when you allocate the dollar again goes further for the LP as well in the same instance because you've been you've been there and you know where to place the bets. Uh, you're referencing the the little ball and you're trying to write, in, in Texas, we call them cowboys. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Hey, I was born in Texas. I was born. I, in, I was born in Houston. I'm a I'm a Texan. I, I love I love my Texas boys. And girls. That's what you're sending me. You're sending me pics. Your your I think it was your grand your granddad's ranch was right by where I grew up uh, near yeah. like outside of San Antonio. So we're gonna we're gonna get that tr- the the plane going back and forth from Tennessee to to Texas. Let's go. Let's do it. I do think we should know we have a redeemed MBA on on the call right now. <laughs> There is yeah, every, that is possible for every time i every time i bring this up i know i'm offending a shit ton of people and i don't mean it that way i just it's like venture in a lot of ways is a relay race you know and i i know a lot of mbas who are absolute wild animals you know uh and it's just i guess my point is it's like venture capital used to be this like non-fully optimized thing uh and now it's like a fully optimized thing where it's like there's now a playbook if you want to go raise venture capital it's like okay you need to get in a y combinator how do you get in a y combinator well there are literally like guides online that you can go and talk about like how do you maximize like your you know 10 minute interview with yc you know how do you it, it's like it's now this the playbook is out there for how to raise capital there is no playbook for how to build a company. Uh, if you're building something that's never been built before, which is hopefully any venture business um, that's that's getting funding is building something new. Um, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say that you're you're actually preaching to the choir, basically. I I, I uh, so I, I have a Stanford MBA and and I know a lot of venture capitalists, uh, you know, classmates of mine, and. Frankly, none of them have ever been hurting for, for you know, where's their next paycheck going to come from? 
you know, how are they going to make a, make their mark? Um, I, you know, I, I wrote, I wrote a piece three years ago now that, that, um, it's probably still my best bit of writing called why the yuppie elite dismiss Bitcoin. And it was all about my personal journey of, of coming from that world and having to reckon with how Bitcoin undid everything that I was taught at Stanford. Uh, and, and how that created a rift between where I was at and how everyone I know still thinks. Um, and they're all in the ivory tower. And I used to be in the ivory tower and I used to think that way too. Um, and those are not wolves um, because wolves are hungry. Uh, and, and you have to grow up hungry to be a born wolf. Or the al alternative is you get wrecked. Um, and so I went yep. through altcoins and I got wrecked and I got humbled. And uh, that's actually what allowed me to shift my mindset uh, outside of you know, what I had been trained in. Um, and, you know, th I think that's the difference between the wolves you're looking for, the wolves that, that are out there is the hunger. And, uh, you know, we're, we're making fun of Silicon Valley VCs today because they don't have they've never known real hunger, real desperation to prove themselves or or uh, fury about, you know, the system. Um, and, and those are the ways that you make a wolf. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's almost like when once the playbook's written, that arbitrage opportunity is out the window. That's why I think, particularly with Bitcoin Focus Venture, that's why, obviously, at 1031, we think there's a large arbitrage opportunity there because being able to find the founders, those wolves, that not only understand Bitcoin, but understand the differences between Bitcoin and all coins. And then on top of that, what Bitcoiners as users need from a product standpoint, and then the arbitrage opportunity that exists for the 1031s and brickyards of the world are the capital allocators who understand those differences too and can and allocate yeah. capital that way. You know, it's funny to me, you know, when I think about venture, um, it's funny that it, it, it's more like ironic that the vast majority of venture funds will have no allocation in the highest returning technology in human history. Uh, for, <laughs> be, be, because, because of like two things, like one, it was inherently accessible to all people on earth from day one and they couldn't justify the fees for investing in it. Like that's, those are just the two, the two reasons, you know, and you know, I love, I, I love what you guys are doing at 1031. Cause you're, you're allowed to, you're, you're able to get a force multiplier on like, you know, this thing that we know to be a certain thing. Um, you know, the, the companies that are building inside of Bitcoin, like Bitcoin native businesses today, you know, th there, there's such a massive upside there. It, I mean, it's, it's funny, funny for me saying I, I run a venture fund and it's like, you know, we, I went to my partners and I'm like, we need to like, we need to have like 15% of our fund in Bitcoin. You, you guys realize that. And they're, they're not as, as like down the rabbit hole as I am. It's just funny. Like that's never going to happen at, at Brickyard because, you know, you go raise a fund on like, we're going to invest in these teams that fit, you know, this, you know, 
this sort of archetype. Um, but unfortunately, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto is, uh, he's not going to come to Brickyard for a year. So we can't, <laughs> we, we can't put an allocation in it. It's funny you, uh, you mentioned that as we have more conversations with capital allocators, that's a, a common thing that, that comes up. It's like, well, where do I put it? Like, how do I bucket this in an asset? Like, that's what precludes them from it. Is it, a, you know, real estate? Is it under uh, commodities? Like, where does it fit? Um, and there's these like little, there's these like legacy areas or frameworks that has kept people so far from it. And to your point, I think that's exactly what it, where it ends up. You'll probably be one of the first on a traditional venture side where you hold BTC because it just helps de-risk the overall, you know, return of the fund. Um, but then that just sound that sound, seems standard, right? Whether it's the same as a balance sheet of a company or as we were, you know, pensions, endowments, family offices, like they have, it's just like a personal balance sheet, right? You start with one, 2% because you're looking at it and ultimately it ends up being your, you know, it's your, your base unit. Um, it's just an interesting dynamic where the legacy framework of how you evaluate your portfolio or your, how you preserve your purchasing power precludes individuals like a venture firm for the past 10 plus years or, you know, Bitcoin's existence from holding any of it when they would have just helped them return uh, the capital to LPs instead of writing down zeros or whatever, whatever mess we're going to see happen in 21 and 22. Well, like and to that point too, like, I guess we can do like a live, uh, sort of like spitball, like on pitching to these institutions, obviously this is what this podcast is speaking to is that caliber of investors. Like you have to internalize the fact that this is a completely different framework to operate within yeah. a base to operate from like, and there's obviously yeah. something here. You're trying to figure out what framework it fits in from your investment mandate or whatever it may be, your, your personal preference. And it's like, if you want to benefit from the monetization of Bitcoin, throw all of your frameworks out the door and just get in some way, somehow. You have to yeah. either make an excuse to get in or just create a whole new different framework for it because it is a whole new animal and it's not going to fit perfectly into any of the frameworks that you've worked with historically. It's yep. it, make, a, make a new damn bucket is the short of it. You know, like it doesn't fit into real estate. It's okay. Yeah. It's a scarce, hard asset. It doesn't fit into real estate. Most people don't touch gold. Um, it, it, if you do touch gold, you're closer to being able to find place in your portfolio for Bitcoin because you have this hard asset commodity mindset, um, as part of your strategy. But yep. yeah, it, the, the alternative is miss out. It's make a new damn bucket for this thing, this technology of this digitization of value or miss out on the digitization of value. Marty, you'll love this uh, story. We're, I was getting, you know, we get some advice and, and go and chat with a mutual friend, uh, one of the, not full-time there anymore, but at one of the largest alternative investment firms. And uh, he was giving some guidance on that when he was selling one of the funds that they were to institutions, they were like, well, where do we fit it? And he's like, I don't care where you fit it. Just put it like it's, it's returns. It will return what you're looking for. It's up to you. It's not my job to do, but it was alluding to like what Cam was referencing. It's like, there's just this framework that everybody's stuck with. And like, I can't touch this. Like it doesn't fit within the, the, the guardrails of how it's real estate commodities. It's, it's really fast. Here's how, I, here's what I am hopeful is going to happen over the next like through this election cycle, I think is when like a lot of this is going to happen. Um, and I know all of us following RFK and, and, and all the other, you know, pres 
presidential candidates that are that are that are Bitcoiners. But you know, this is going to be the first time where Americans realize, like, wow, there's there are multiple presidential candidates that believe in this like whole different thing. And I think what's going to happen is, is you know, I struggle with figuring out like how RFK actually like mechanically makes his way into the presidency, but I sure hope that he sticks around for a really long time because he's he's providing some really good things for the American public to think about, namely like what is purchasing power? And I think the problem that Americans like as a whole that have today is they they think of money in like monetary units and they're not thinking about money in purchasing power. So even though they've heard inflation, they haven't like grasped that that like energy versus like units sort of like uh, dynamic. And as as Americans start to understand what is purchasing power, they're going to realize what the Fed has been doing. And you're going to have candidates like, you know, RFK, they're going to be beating that drum about how the Fed is the reason that we've been able to fight all these wars and how the Fed's the reason that we're doing this. You know, I think people are going to finally come to the understanding of like where Jeff Booth is at with price tomorrow and, and with, you know, dropping price. It's like when people understand that money is like this is, is energy. It's, it is like, I was thinking, prior to this to coming on, I was like, what are the one thing, what are some of the things I want to say? It's like the Apollo commute computers consumed like 70 watts during operation. And iPhone 10 use, uses like three watts to operate. You know, the iPhone 10 has 100,000 times the processing power, power while, while consuming like, you know, like less than 5% of, of the energy that goes into it. And like if Watts could somehow by, be inflated by like an international science commission or something, an iPhone 10 today would probably cost like 120 Watts to use when it, when it should just cost three, right? And, and so the thing that I'm excited about is people are gonna realize, you know, over the next few years, like what purchasing power is, and there really is only one answer, you know, of, what is the alternative? And, you know, it's the thing that's like irreversibly ties money to physics uh, and then lets the prices, you know, fall as like the people, you and me, like as we create value in the world, like that value wasn't created by like empty dollars that were thrown into the economy. It was created by like us going to work and creating value and creating new efficiencies and inventing new things you know, and that's that's where the value in the world rises. And, you know, money just needs to be this perfect one-one representation of all the value in the world. Like, it doesn't need intrinsic value. It's just its intrinsic value is that one-to-one -one perfect bridge to the value that, you know, we all have have created and, you know, and earned in just going to work every day. So anyway, that's my, that's my soapbox that I wanted to, you know, get off my chest uh, while I had this awesome platform. 
Yeah, it reminds me of the MBAs and PhDs on Wall Street. Uh, it's having figured out real returns versus nominal returns. Like uh, this, this inflation thing is kind of funny. That's only we've been talking about it for two years. It's like you know, roughly talking about it two years. Reality is two percent inflation hasn't been two percent inflation for a decade plus. It's probably been five to ten percent. Now we're at fifteen to twenty, and everybody's saying it's three. <laughs> Right. Like, I mean, it's just really nobody says it, but it's true. Like you go and look at what it costs to do anything. And it's like, this isn't three, this isn't even seven. It's closer to 10 to 15, if, if not higher, but nobody talked yeah. about it. It's just like, no, we're just in this like thing. And the, the 2% everybody's benchmark was, was really probably five to 10. Yeah. It's like the NBC meme of like the dude with the shitty beard and the bald head, just like pointing with his mouth open, like CPI says 3.2. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's like don't it's believe your lying eyes. It's three point two percent. Yeah, and, and and to add on to Cam's point, it, I, I, that's entirely right. I did have a a hang up when I was going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole of thinking in in terms of what you were saying, but then not having faith in humanity to figure it out and to get there. Like like that's a leap of faith. But then you know the other piece of this puzzle that comes into play is what Safedine emphasizes in, in the Bitcoin standard of you can't insulate yourself from other people having a, a harder, better money than you. And so, it, you know, people will either figure it out or it will happen to them and they will yep. be forced to react to it. So thankfully, it, it doesn't even rely on people figuring it out. It, it's an economic reality. Couldn't have said it better. And I mean, yeah, we 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 have a minute left here. We need to be respectful of everybody's time. I think this last ten minutes has been exhilarating. Can that that soapbox monologue was was impeccable? No, I mean, <laughs> that's the other thing. Like any high net worth individual institution listening to us, like what Cam mentioned, that connection of the digital and the physical realm via Bitcoin, the digital. Uh, money that is connected to the world very tightly connected to physics via energy that is necessary to produce that money via electricity uh is an innovation and an unlock for humanity that has never existed that that core that connection not even correlation a direct connection between energy and the digital world in the scarce asset like that is what makes this go around money doesn't grow on trees no it does not Grows on local tree, but um, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's a terrible Bitcoin dad joke. I love it. <laughs> well, guys, uh, thank you, thank y'all. So, I mean, this has been, you know, I'll just say, I'm I'm sort of on an island, and you know, I'm not in in the you know in the Bitcoin world every day with what I do for for work, and it's. Like I swear, I, I I go home at night, and my mom or my wife knows when when I've been talking to Bitcoiners. It's like <laughs> I I love I I love it. Thank you all for one just having me on here, um, but but two, you know, I'm gonna I just know like for the rest of today, my heart's gonna be a little bit happier that you know I got to be around other people that you know understand something pretty important and uh i i appreciate everything that you guys are doing like you guys are the best are the best 
and uh, please wait. Keep making it happen. Wait till we record in person in uh, the Brickyard Studio. We got to make it make it yes. happen. Yes. Let's. Anytime you guys want to come in, I'll come pick you guys up. I, I I'll do anything. You, you, y'all bring it on. Well, next time we do it, we'll do it in person, Cam. Uh, the feeling is mutual. We're really um, honored to have you on and love what you're doing at Brickyard and um, sort of seeping your way into Bitcoin. It's really important to see. And that's like what we're trying to portray to the audience is like, hey, it's not just a, us crazy Bitcoiners thinking about this. Like people in your world are beginning to think about this more and more. And I think you're uh, an incredible example of that. So thank you for taking some time to chat with us today. Thank awesome. you guys. Thanks, Cam. All right. We'll see you guys next week.